If you're joining us this week without having listened to last week's episode of Bonnie and Clyde, you'll want to stop now and go back to episode two. It's the beginning of the story and you don't want to miss it. We're on the trail of Bonnie and Clyde, searching for what lies beneath. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi, Tapophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle, and I'm with my partner in crime, Taylor. Hey, guys. We are picking up where we left off last week in the story of Bonnie and Clyde. After the raid to their Joplin hideout, police found undeveloped rolls of film. When they had them processed, they found many photos of Bonnie and Clyde in the gang. Clyde and Bonnie loved to take photos together. If they could have in those days, they would have been all over taking selfies. (laughs) The photos showed them showing off fancy suits and hats, dresses and heels, the latest stolen cars. They loved to goof off and try silly poses. And these are the famous photos of Bonnie and Clyde that you see. Photos of them with their arms around each other or Clyde holding Bonnie in one arm. In one photo, Bonnie is pointing a shotgun at Clyde as he looks amused. Not the best gun safety there. That's all I can think every time I look at it. I'm just like, um... But there's one photo that just blew up when the photo's released to the press. And this is one of Bonnie in a nice outfit, kind of a sweater top, a little tam hat, which is like a little kind of flat beret hat, Mm -hmm. and a skirt. And she has one leg up on the front bumper of a car. She's trying to look really tough and has a pistol in one hand, and she has a cigar in her mouth. In the Roaring Twenties, hairstyles went shorter as well as hemlines. So things had started to change a little. The Victorian age was gone, but there was still this very strong idea of what was appropriate, modest, and acceptable, air quotes, behavior of women. Oh, brother. (laughs) It doesn't sound risque now. In fact, both you and I have many photos that would have been considered (laughs) way worse. (laughs) (laughs) But the stance back then with a leg up on the bumper was considered very immodest in those days, and that drew attention. But it was actually the stogie in her teeth that caused the biggest ruckus. Women in those days, they smoked little small cigarettes and supposedly just puffed, never really inhaled. (laughs) So this cigar was thought of as just vulgar, and for those reasons, and all the ones that you can imagine, everyone just thought that was the worst thing that they have ever seen. Oh, brother. And so these photos, the silly whim to take one of the guy's cigars for a gag shot, were part of the reason that Bonnie got this reputation in the public as being this hard, fast and loose, no matter how unfair it was. Mm -hmm. And it just chapped Bonnie that she would be newspaper headlines (laughs) and claiming her to be this hardened, stogie-smoking criminal. (laughs) And whenever she got the chance to talk to people, she made sure that they knew that she didn't really smoke cigars. (laughs) You go, girl. She's like, it was just a joke. Oh, come on, people. Don't y'all ever take selfies? Come on. Don't you take silly photos of yourself doing silly things that you don't do in real life? Oh, that's hilarious. A pivotal point in the run was this devastating car accident that was had by Bonnie, Clyde, and WD. Clyde was driving so fast that he flew right past a detour sign, and they crashed through this wooden barrier and, like, caught air before rolling the car several times. Clyde 
was cut up, had a broken nose. You know, they were all really bloody. WD was also cut up on his face and had some burns on him. Bonnie had lots of cuts and bruises and I guess took a blow to the chest. But the worst one was she was burned from the battery acid spurting out the smashed car battery. And as W.D. Jones put it, the hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to the ankle. I could see the bones at places. Ah. Yeah, so acid burn. Oh no, that's awful. Some people living nearby saw them fly by on the road and heard the crash and went to help. They took Bonnie into their home and the women put some baking soda, which apparently in those days they put baking soda on wounds for some reason. Some kind of a common practice, but in this situation it actually helped because it neutralized the acid and stopped the burning. Smart ladies. So they also put some kind of salve on it. And so Bonnie was just in extreme pain and they tried to tell Clyde that she needed to go to a hospital. But Clyde refused. During all the craziness, one of the boys at the house went for the police. They didn't realize that they had Bonnie and Clyde. They thought they had just a couple of drunk teenagers. But when they came back with the police, Clyde, as per his usual, took them hostage. And with Bonnie laying across the deputy's lap in the back seat, took off driving. Clyde was impressed that the men were so tender with Bonnie and tried to cushion and cradle her head as the car jostled around. Clyde asked the deputies, have you ever heard of Bonnie and Clyde? They say, no, but we've heard of a buck barrow. Clyde had given themselves away. They knew who they were dealing with now and that Bonnie was wounded. Clyde let them go at the side of a road, but they would have all the local hospitals on the lookout for them. As they met back up with the others, they had to stop at stores periodically to buy ointments, bandages to try to help her. They never took her to a hospital, but she was seen by a doctor twice. It had to have been excruciating, bouncing around in a car for days on end. And of course, the doctor told them she needs to be hospitalized, and of course, they couldn't do that. So they did the best they could. Clyde actually goes to Dallas to pick up Bonnie's sister, Billie Jean and he takes her to Bonnie to help take care of her. They also stole a doctor's medical bag that he had left in his car outside the hospital that he worked at. And so then they were able to have some medicine and medical supplies for Bonnie. Bonnie was never able to walk normally again. In all the movies, they show Bonnie walking, running, shooting people. But the truth of it was from then on, she was in the car or the women would be left a short way out of town during almost all the robberies and Clyde usually carried her to where she needed to go once she healed up more which took a long time she hopped on her good leg for short distances and in photos Clyde's arm around her is actually holding her up poor thing I know it's awful The gang embarked upon a series of bold robberies which made headlines across the country. They escaped capture in various encounters with the law. However, their activities made law enforcement efforts to apprehend them even more intense. In Jeff Gunn's book, Go Down Together, he states, They were feared, which pleased Clyde, and famous, which was something Bonnie had always wanted. They were their own bosses. They wore nice clothes and drove only the best cars. Despite Bonnie's terrible burns and WD's injuries, they still must have felt a certain sense of invulnerability. In every shootout with the laws, they had won the fight. Other people died, not them. The Barrow Gang always escaped. For all the times they told their families they accepted the inevitability of a terrible end someday, Clyde was still only 23 and Bonnie 22. Ages when, even under the circumstances, someday seems very far away. Their fatalism was tempered by their youth. During a shootout with police in Iowa in July 29, 1933, Buck Barrow was hit with a bullet in the right temple, exiting out his forehead and taking away part of his skull and exposing his brain. (gasps) 
Blanche helped get Buck into the getaway car, and as she turned to look out the window, a bullet hit the glass and sprayed glass fragments into her eyes. Even though Blanche couldn't see a thing, she kept her hands pressed firmly against her husband's head. She later told that the floor in front of the back seat was so full of blood you could hear it slosh. It's awful. They stopped when they could to look at Blanche's eyes and stopped to buy bandages, aspirin, and hydrogen peroxide, <laughs> which again, there you go. Clyde the doctor, they poured right into the hole in Buck's skull. Oh my gosh. Well, let's put some hydrogen peroxide in there. That'll, that'll help. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Oh. Oh, geez. <laughs> they expected Buck to die at any moment and found a place in the woods that they could make him more comfortable than bouncing around in a car. They did the best they could to get the glass out of Blanche's eyes. Buck could talk and was alert most of the time. He said that his head hurt a little and that he just needed a drink of water. Oh. <laughs> wow, Buck, tough guy. I got a, I got a little headache, something, something, something's happening up there. So they stayed put there for a few days, but were soon found out. And another shootout with the law left Buck with another bullet wound in his back that lodged in his chest, and both he and Blanche were captured. And, of course, Bonnie and Clyde and WD had run off, stole another car. These guys had to have had at least nine lives, right? So Blanche and Buck captured. Blanche received surgery for her eyes and was never allowed to see Buck again. Buck's mother, Kumi, and brother, Elsie, drove 36 hours to Arkansas and got there as Buck took a turn for the worse. He passed July 29th. He survived six days after he'd been shot in the head. Oh, goodness. This is nothing with aspirin and hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, I mean, apparently Clyde is a doctor. <laughs> he was able to keep him alive for six days. I'm thinking it must have just been like, like it didn't hit his brain. And even though he bled a lot, yeah, you know, it didn't affect any of his yeah. functions. I don't, he probably would have lived if he could have had medical care. Yeah. And honestly, a lot of people can survive head injuries like that. There's a lot of cases mm -hmm. of people surviving that. So that is totally possible. If they had just taken him to a hospital, he probably could have lived right. the rest of his life in prison yeah it might be in prison <laughs> and he might have some like mental disabilities just because of it but who knows definitely seems like it was the other because they were like nah don't put him in the hospital let's keep going and then he got shot again this poor man they're like he's gonna die he got shot in the head we can see his brain yeah like, he's gonna die he did <laughs> he did yeah. he died his body was returned to Dallas, where he was buried in Western Heights Cemetery there in West Dallas. Yeah. About 50 family members attended. Their parents, Kumi and Henry, didn't put a headstone on his grave at first. They knew that Clyde would soon be behind his big brother, and they would bury them next to each other. That's just sad. You can only imagine what these poor parents went through. Later, when Clyde was told of the plan, he approved and even suggested something to be written as the epitaph. Blanche woke on the night of the 29th, dreaming that Buck was calling to her. She took this to mean that he had died, and yet no one would confirm it for her until the next day. Blanche served six years in prison for assault with intent to kill. After her release, she remarried and lived a pretty quiet life thereafter just like she had always wanted to do. She wrote a little poem herself in 1933, and it's titled, Sometimes. Across the fields of yesterday, she sometimes comes to me, a little girl just back from play, the girl I used to be. And yet she smiles so wistfully. Once she has crept within, I wonder if she hopes to see the woman I might have been. Isn't that just sad? Yeah. I really kind of feel for Blanche. She was in such a terrible situation. And yet I can't help but feel if she would have had the strength to say no to Buck. If she would have 
stayed behind rather than be with Clyde and Bonnie, that Buck would have really stayed with her. He wouldn't have left without her or would have come back. That she might have been able to change the outcome of their lives. And honestly, she got the short end of the stick of everything. Completely. Because she didn't, she wasn't participating in any of these things. She literally was just there because she her was husband was there. The proverbial along for the ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She was. While being the cook and the cleaning lady. Yeah. Her life totally changed because of that. Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. were all in terrible shape. Clyde had been shot in the left arm and it hung lifeless at his side. They were literally wrapped in sheets found in their latest stolen car. Their clothes from the shootout of the 24th, where Buck had been shot in the head, were so soaked with blood and they had no other clothes. So I just have this image of them dressed in like togas you know driving around robbing (laughs) i'm sorry that's kind of funny i know they drove somewhere and clyde and wd robbed some little store but could you see these guys in togas you know walking in with their big old guns (laughs) like this is a holdup give me all your money i just (laughs) i don't know the images (laughs) that's not very intimidating (laughs) (laughs) and the guy's like are you serious yeah you sure about that toga man yeah so they (laughs) they got a little money bought clothes and food the usual mo a wd about this time had had all he could take and asked if he could go home to his mother and they understood and told him yeah just you know if the police ever pick you up just tell them you've been forced by bonnie and clyde to participate in all those crimes Mm. Jones, who was frequently mistaken for Pretty Boy Floyd, was later captured in November of 1933 in Houston, Texas, by the sheriff's office. Bonnie and Clyde limped home without money and gifts. This time, they were a ragtag couple of kids asking for help. Bonnie would stay with her family some, while Clyde and some new guys pulled some jobs. They would continue to see their families the whole time they were on the run. In October, Bonnie's family was struck by tragedy. Her niece and nephew, ages two and four, died. Hmm. It's thought to have been typhoid or pneumonia, but it was another terrible blow, and Bonnie was devastated. Hmm. Clyde got reinterested in the Eastham prison break that he'd always wanted to pull. Of course he did. Right. (laughs) With some new help, he actually does it. And they did it by leaving some guns in the woods and getting word to their inmate friends where the guns were hidden. And so when they went out to work the next day, they got them, shot their guards, and then ran to where Bonnie and Clyde were waiting in a car. Clyde laid down cover while they ran to the car. And so they were able to get away. They picked up four guys. And one of them, unbeknownst to them, would help finally bring about their end. His name was Henry Methvin, a young man in for car theft and attempted murder. He started running with Bonnie and Clyde. Many times they would drive to Louisiana so that he could see his family. It was very backwoods there and they could stay pretty hidden for days at a time. They got along great with Henry and the true crime magazines at the time. Did you know that they had true crime mags back then? No, I had no idea. I didn't. We would be reading all of those magazines. I know. I'm like, what? I guess people have always been interested in true crime. We're not new. No. We we thought we were new with selfies and true crime. No. No. (laughs) They had already already done it. There you go. Back in the 30s. (laughs) That's crazy. Almost 100 years ago. Yeah. So anyway, they would find these mags and... They would be in stolen cars or, the, you know, they buy one. But they got the biggest kick out of reading about themselves in the true crime magazines. I'm sure they did. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine, but that's... <laughs> anyway, the true crime magazines would talk about how Clyde had this near-mystical ability to sense potential danger. He would always, just in the nick of time, get out of danger. 
But if he did have that, it was totally missed with Henry. At this time, Frank Hamer had been put on their tail. He was a former Texas Ranger, and he had been quietly following the leads and their patterns of driving and trips. And Henry Methven's father helped broker a deal to get a pardon in Texas if he helped them to corner Bonnie and Clyde. Henry was kind of a loose cannon. Several murders happened with him and the gang. He shot and killed Texas motorcycle cops, Wheeler and Murphy, when they stopped to check on them parked on the side of the road. Clyde said to his family later that he said to Henry, let's take him, meaning let's take him hostage. But Henry took it as let's take him, like let's take him down, which he did going as far as to get out of the car afterwards and shoot one of the men several times again. Oh, my. A couple that witnessed it from their car said that it was a man that shot him. But a guy way down the road looking from his porch saw the whole thing and insisted that it was a woman and that she repeatedly shot him while his head bounced on the road like a rubber ball. This is why you can't trust eyewitnesses right here. (laughs) So then there was also a cigar found there next to the bodies, which gave further evidence that it had been Bonnie. Ah. You know, the cigars that she smoked all the time. Yeah. (laughs) One of the men that had been killed, H.D. Murphy, was on the first day of his new job. Oh. He was engaged to be married had just got an apartment and fixed it up with his bride-to-be. And at his funeral, his fiancée wore her wedding dress. That's awful. The public was just, just like you, just like, what? And Bonnie got out and shot her fiancée in the head? What a terrible person. The public, always having been a champion for Bonnie and Clyde, now kind of turned against them. They had crossed some kind of line and had ruined this young woman's future. And where Bonnie had been seen before as sexy and tough, now they just saw her as a cop killer and a dream killer. That really ruined their image. Something that they hadn't even done. Well, kind of had done. They made the situation happen. But Bonnie, I don't think, had anything to do with it. Again, it's like Henry starts shooting everybody. And again, she can't even walk on her own very well. So, Exactly. But not that everyone knew that. Then another shootout with Chief of Commerce Police Percy Boyd and Town Constable Cal Campbell happened. And the men stopped really to help seeing Clyde and the gang were stuck in the mud after a rainstorm and got shot up for their trouble. Afterwards, they look at the men. Campbell was dead or dying and Boyd had a superficial head wound. And so to get his car unstuck, Clyde recruits a couple of guys that had come running, hearing the shots. And he says, boys, one good man has already been killed. And if you don't follow orders, Others are liable to be. So they came over and got their car unstuck. And what they do with Chief of Police Boyd. Did they take him hostage? You guessed it. (laughs) They took him hostage. Oh, wow. What a shocker. Oh, my. What a shocker. They love to take hostages. (laughs) So here's the funny thing to me is that. They shoot all these people, but then whenever they actually got someone and took them hostage, they were like super nice to them, really great, did all these nice things for them, had these great conversations and would drop them off somewhere safe, you know, would just leave them lightly tied up or something so that they could get loose or walk into town. It was kind of weird. Like if you pulled guns on them and you started trying to kill them, like they would totally shoot to kill you. But Mm -hmm. If, you know, you were okay and you didn't seem to be wanting to hurt them, they were real amiable and super nice. So weird. They take Officer Boyd 
and a few miles down the road, they find it blocked by another few cars that are stuck in the mud. And Clyde screams out the window, we've just killed two men and we're in a hurry. The law is after us. You can't even make this crap up. So the guys were totally motivated to help, you know, and they're trying to get their cars out of the mud, but they couldn't get them unstuck. Here comes Clyde and Henry. They get out and they help get the guys unstuck while Bonnie stays in the car holding a gun with the prisoner. So after getting unstuck, Bonnie tells Clyde, you know, pull over at a stream. We got to clean up Boyd's head wound. And they talked a lot that day. And he actually develops this fondness for Bonnie. Like, he really likes her. Aww. He's got blood on his shirt. So they give him one of their shirts and a new tie. And they're like, hey, Melvin, your suit coat, you know, would fit him. Give him your suit coat. And... <laughs> So, and then in some little town, Clyde breaks into a bubblegum machine for change. Uh-huh. And they get enough change to go buy some food at a local diner. And so then they set Boyd loose in a rural area close to Fort Scott and all fed and clothed and ready to go. And Boyd asks Bonnie, what would you like me to tell the press? And of all the things that she could have said, her answer was... Tell them I don't smoke cigars. <laughs> what? Not that I didn't kill your partner. Like, you know, um, I guess then she didn't know. Like, I wasn't out yet. Yeah. Nothing about the previous, you know, murder, something that was about her. No. Maybe to her that equaled I don't smoke cigars was equal with I'm a good person. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Then she was thrilled when almost every story about the gang's latest cop killing mentioned it. <laughs> of course she was. She hated that part. She did not want people to think that she smoked cigars. You can think whatever you want about me, but I do not smoke cigars. <laughs> oh, brother. So they go back to Louisiana, not knowing that Frank Hamer was just waiting for them to come back. They were there for a while, and then when they decided it was time to move on, they figured out a day when they were going to leave. Henry, of course, and his father in on the trap says, I want to spend the last night with my family. So Bonnie and Clyde are cool with that. And they stayed elsewhere. And in the morning, they drove out to Henry's folks' place to pick him up. It was a long road with only one way in and out. And as they drove in, Henry's dad was parked out in the road with what looked to be a flat tire. And so when Clyde stopped to help, the posse started to fire. <gasps> they would claim that Clyde and Bonnie were reaching for guns in their lap, but their guns were actually in the back seat. They didn't have time to reach for anything. The window on Clyde's side was open and Clyde was hit almost immediately in the head above his ear. He was probably dead almost immediately. The men would later say that Bonnie screamed a shrill scream when she saw that Clyde got shot. Yeah. That would haunt them the rest of their lives. Clyde's foot came off the brake as he died and it started to roll and not knowing if it was taking off again or not, the posse unloaded over 150 rounds into the car. Oh, goodness. Overkill. The car is just riddled with bullets. It came to rest in a small ditch at the side of the road, where then Frank Hamer came behind Bonnie's side, unleashing more rounds into her back, and then went to the side window and shot her some more from the front. <laughs> Do you think she could possibly be dead by now? She definitely was dead. There's 150 rounds in the car. He shot her in the back. Right. And then he shot her in the front some more? Like, dude, she's obviously dead by now. Yes. Come on. That's ridiculous. The two outlaws were dead. In 16 seconds, it was all over. Except that loggers and farmers came to see what all the noise was. And as Frank Hamer and a few of the other posse that consisted of other government agencies went into town to call and report to their bosses that they had them and that they were dead, the other men that were left to guard the bodies in the car were having a hard time dealing with the crowd. Like, people just started showing up. 
which is crazy. You wouldn't think that there would be that many people, but people just started showing up. And then they were like, oh, it's Bonnie and Clyde. And so they started picking things up and digging bullets out of nearby trees and even went as far as trying to cut Bonnie's dress with a pair of scissors, get a piece of the gory fabric, cut locks of her hair. A man even tried to cut off Clyde's ear. What? And another was trying to cut off Clyde's trigger finger. What? Why? Why? There are some crazy people. Hey, you see here in this bottle? See this finger? Yeah. (laughs) It's Clyde Barrels. This is Clyde Barrels' trigger finger. I got me his trigger finger. (laughs) What? What is going on in their minds? Why would you want his ear of all the things? I am so pissed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's too much. What is what is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? Goodness. <laughs> Maybe in a way, because they kind of were celebrities at this point. It wasn't just that they were outlaws. Yeah. They were celebrities. And so, right. I mean, think of all the things that are like on eBay. You know, where it was like, yeah, Beyonce's toothbrush or something like that. And people are just like, ah, I need that toothbrush. Isn't that nuts? What the actual heck? I don't think I would ever walk up to a celebrity a dead celebrity and be like, hmm, I should cut off their finger. That seems like a great idea. <laughs> then I could just I know. keep it in this bottle for the rest of my life and pass it on to my kids. That's insane. Nasty. Ugh. They didn't get away. You know, they were able to get them back. So they didn't actually cut. They didn't actually cut off his finger or his ears, but they were trying to. But still, it's Ugh. still insane. <laughs> so as Frank Hamer and the others came back out to the scene, They were followed by this line of cars. So people had heard their conversations because they're just talking on payphones. So they had to go, they had to drive all the way back into town, make calls on payphones in public places. All these people started hearing and it went, I guess, viral, you know? So they're followed out there by close to 200 cars, they guessed. And so a wrecker arrives to pull their death car they called it later the death car it was chained to the wrecker with their bodies still inside to be towed back to town again just this whole line of cars coming back into town so there's one more terrible hiccup the tow truck broke down in the worst place possible on the way back into town in front of the public schoolyard with children running around for recess. Oh my goodness. Yes. Screeching children swarmed around the car. All these children come running around, screeching around the car. One of the officers had covered the bodies at least with a sheet, but one of the children actually reaches in and pulls it off. Hundreds of children were scarred for life seeing these poor mutilated corpses of Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, they'd been hit so many times. It was... Why? What is in the... I have no words. I know. Like I said before, you can't make this crap up. I could not have made up this story if I had tried. Oh, what a wild time to live in. We always think of you know, the 30s is like this really cool time. Maybe it was, but I think in some ways it was hard and it was horrible. And I don't know if just their life was such drudgery that this was like any kind of excitement was excitement. So this excitement just like explodes and they get into town and there is just people everywhere. They estimated that this town is like 3,000 usually was full of like 16,000 people. Holy. Just trying to get a glimpse of Bonnie and Clyde. The guys are trying to put them on gurneys. You take them inside the coroner's office and people are snatching at them. It just is absolute mayhem. Uh, yeah. And then the other just, ugh, part is that insult was totally added to injury when a photographer somehow got in and took photos of their naked bodies as they laid on the embalming tables for the coroner to examine them. Oh, 
of yes. it. Their cameras aren't taken away. The film wasn't taken out. They even publish these photos in the newspaper. What? Okay, so we just talked about how Bonnie was completely thought terrible because she smoked cigars. Yeah. But then the newspapers can release nude oh. photos of them dead and that's okay awful what up with like victorian you know sentiments at this yeah hang all of the morals that we were all upset about when she had her leg up on a car with a cigar in her mouth now we're just gonna post a nude photo of her dead body in a newspaper yeah i'm offended i'm offended i'm totally offended by this This i know i'm offended and she can't even do anything about it because she was dead. It's not like she could like sue anybody or complain about it. She literally had no choice. That is... Newspapers, uh, they're like, oh, you think we made money on their story before? Take this. Oh my gosh. Some of these newspapers sent ginormous bouquets of flowers to their funeral. Ugh. And it's like oh, here's a little bit of the money back that you earned us. We're now all billionaires. Pigs. So, and then the other thing that I just, ugh, afterwards, is that once they have them covered up again, they then allowed people to file through and view their bodies, like right then and there. What the heck? And this is all due to Frank Hamer thinking it was a good idea to let the people see what happens to you when you live a life of crime. That is insane. Can you imagine that happening nowadays? No. No, no, no. No! 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 (laughs) No! (laughs) Just no! That's awful! You get it. They had to be stopped. They had to be taken down. Yeah. It just... It just feels kind of icky, you know? The, the way whole situation is icky. The families were devastated, of course. And as they had the bodies sent home, they were sent to two different funeral homes. Even though Bonnie had expressly left instruction to have her buried next to Clyde, her mother had ill feelings toward Clyde for getting her daughter into a life of crime, and she wouldn't allow it. Even though Emma Parker had spent many hours with the Barrels and talking with Clyde's mother, Kumi, she didn't even attend Clyde's funeral. They both had tens of thousands attend their viewings, which had to have been exhausting for their families. If you can only imagine 10,000 people, you know, coming through to look at your child again, you know. People you didn't even know. Yeah, right. So again, like Buck's funeral, there was 50 people. So yeah, 50 people you knew and then 9,000, you know, people that you did not. I mean, and Bonnie's reportedly, her viewing had about 20,000 people. Goodness. Bonnie was dressed in a blue negligee and then had a white veil covering her face to cover up a lot of the damage that had been done when she was shot. Clyde was buried at Western Heights Cemetery next to his brother Buck. Bonnie Parker was buried in West Dallas's Fish Trap Cemetery, two miles from Clyde. She was buried next to her little niece and nephew. But she was moved to the new Crown Hill Cemetery in 1945 because of frequent vandalism. She is next to her mother there. Her grave is usually covered in grave goods like little lipsticks or cigarettes. It has the most interesting inscription. As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. I was a little stunned when I saw that. How do you, what do you think about that? (laughs) It's a little weird, but I remember when we first saw that, we were like, uh... Okay. <laughs> what? Cold-hearted killer Bonnie Parker. Like, she didn't make people's lives. Yeah. Too. But now, like, learning more about her, it makes sense. Her family adored her. Like you said, there was several times where they would kidnap somebody and they would just be, like, so nice to them. And people grew fond right. of her. Like, she was a sweet woman. So it makes sense. It's... She just made really poor life choices, obviously. 
Back to back to her mother. <laughs> back to her mother. You gotta stop falling in love with criminals. Yeah. So I don't. Not uh, the best idea. It's exactly. Sad. And so I think what people are trying to do, what her mom was trying to do in that situation, is really highlight the fact that she was a great person, even if she made these awful mistakes. About three miles away, there is Western Heights Cemetery. When you and I went to see it, we looked it up online, you know, to find the address. And I saw quite a few reviews saying how poorly the cemetery was taken care of or how it was always locked up and how sketched the neighborhood was. And so I kind of faltered and asked you guys, are you still up for it? <laughs> and I was like, uh, Marcus is a big guy. I think we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of like, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and he's like, what? You know, like, yeah, it's all right. It's like, it's okay. <laughs> We're good. And so when we missed our turn and we had to drive around the cemetery in the neighborhood, we were like, this is West Dallas? Like, this is kind of cute. Yeah. Just seemed like they're just nice little homes, well kept. So no longer, I don't know, to me, it didn't look like the devil's back porch anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, it did not. It was actually really nice. I wouldn't say it's like a high-end neighborhood, but I wouldn't say it was sketchy right. either, like everyone was saying online. It was really right. just like a nice little community. When we went up to the cemetery, um, it's surrounded by black wrought iron gates, and there was a padlock, but it wasn't locked, and it was just like a Sunday late afternoon. We were able to just open the gate, go in. It's maybe an acre yeah. or less, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's just much bigger kind of than small. that. kind of small. And the grass looked pretty mowed, and there were grape hyacinths blooming in the grass. Oh, so pretty. And that was just, that was pretty, wasn't it? Yes. And there's a few other graves there. We kind of looked around at some of those, and mm -hmm. but when you look to the left... There's literally a brick path leading to Clyde's grave. Yeah. It made it very easy. You know, I'm sure that's the only reason most people go there. So just follow the little path and there's Clyde's grave. And he does share Hudstone with his best friend and brother Buck. It had a pack of cigarettes left on it and a few bullets. Um, sometimes people leave little toy guns, things like that. It reads... Barrel at the top. On the right-hand side, it says Marvin I, born March 14th, 1905, died July 29th, 1933. On the left-hand side, it says Clyde C, March 24th, 1909, died May 23rd, 1934. And at the bottom, it reads, gone but not forgotten. So Taylor... This is the part of the podcast that we talk about the shadows. Ooh, I'm interested. So the ghosts of Bonnie and Clyde have been reported to haunt the woods and the roads surrounding the weathered memorial on the road there where they are ambushed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So where they were actually killed, there's... A memorial stone that's been put up and it actually looks like it's been shot numerous times mm -hmm. which I guess is fair under the circumstances <laughs> but it reads this site May 23rd 1943 Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were killed by law enforcement officers so it just kind of looks like a headstone but it's a little memorial hmm. there's also a little memorial to the law enforcement officers themselves. Mm -hmm. Like the ones that caught them or like the ones that had been killed along the way? Yes, Frank, Hamer, and okay. the rest of the posse. It's to them commemorating that they caught and brought down the notorious Bonnie and Clyde. Mm -hmm. So, but it's at this spot where many visitors have reported hearing strange sounds... But they usually materialize when photos have been taken at night, and then they'll show strange mists, orbs, and kind of light squiggles. I saw pictures. They just look like little bright lines of squiggly lines. Interesting. And then sometimes they'll have taken numerous pictures, and then there'll just be one that has 
one of these things in it, you know, an orb or a strange mist or something. Supposedly that's the most haunted place that people seem to see these little anomalies. On May 23rd, 2013, a group called Friends of Dusana out of Shreveport, Louisiana, set out to capture evidence of the ghosts of Bonnie and Clyde on the 79th anniversary of their deaths. I left a link in the show notes on our blog. So go to that if you want to hear the eerie voices that they were able to record on their EVP recorders out at the spot that they were killed. Creepy. The car itself is also considered haunted. Oh, that makes sense. For 30 years, this blood-splattered, bullet-ridden V8 Ford death car, as it's known, was a popular attraction at carnivals, amusement parks, flea markets, and state fairs. It is estimated that it made its owners millions of dollars. Wow. Today, the car is displayed in a room along with Clyde Barrow's blood-stained, bullet-holed shirt at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada, just across the border from California. In the picture of the shirt, I guess someone took it home, washed all the blood out, and then it has been on display. And yeah, it has all these big bullet holes in it. Dang. So several people who have viewed the Ford over the years state they got a creepy or a natural feeling as they stood near it. Which, to me, makes sense, even if there's no ghosts involved. Uh, yeah. Two people were massacred. (laughs) Yes. Creepy feeling. I get it. And then again, many people who've taken photographs of the car have picked up strange anomalies in their pictures. Okay. One hotel that Bonnie and Clyde stayed at for several nights during their crime spree was the Baker Hotel in Mineral Wells, Texas. It stated that... The two haunt two specific areas of the hotel, the Brazos room and the ballroom. Some feel their ghosts are still present because they are reliving fond memories. Others say that it is several objects the hotel owns that keep their ghosts active. For the hotel once had Bonnie's 38 revolver on display as well as photographs of her and Clyde. The hotel also once displayed a poem that Bonnie wrote for Clyde. Some state that a video of a ghostly woman wearing a long old-fashioned gown walking from one pillar to the next in the hotel lobby resembles Bonnie. Unfortunately, this video has been made private recently. Yeah, that's what we have as far as for the creepies of this story. Get the creepers. I don't know. Go check out those links and see what you think and let us know. So that's it. That's our story. That's what lies beneath. Thank you, Taylor, for being here with me today and for all you do for our podcast. Of course. I love it. Thanks for having me. I loved this story. Now I know so much about Bonnie and Clyde. I read two big, amazing books to get in-depth details prepping for this podcast. The books are My Life with Bonnie and Clyde by Blanche C. Barrow herself and Go Down Together by Jeff Gwynn, who is an award-winning investigative journalist who gave so many intriguing details into their lives. Get this book if you want to dive deeper into their story. Bonnie and Clyde is a story of two kids from rough circumstances doing everything they thought they had to, to get where they wanted to be in life. They wanted more. I think that besides the occasional new suit and the adrenaline of their flights, the excitement of being famous and having people see you in the newsreels at the movies, they gave people something else to focus on other than their own misery. They were able to live a little through them, And they even seemed to enjoy it when they robbed the bank, sticking it to the proverbial man. But in the end, they reaped their rewards for the lives they lived. It caught up to them in the way they envisioned. Bonnie had written a poem called The Story of Bonnie and Clyde. Here's an excerpt. You've read the story of Jesse James and how he lived and died. If you're still in need of something to read, here's the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. 
There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate all the law. The stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they're heartless and mean. But I say this with pride that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. But the laws fooled around, kept taking them down and locking him up in a cell till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. The road was so dimly lighted, there were no highway signs to guide. But they made up their minds, if all roads were blind, they wouldn't give up till they died. The road gets dimmer and dimmer, sometimes you can hardly see. But it's fight man to man and do all you can, for they know they can never be free. From heartbreak, some people have suffered. From weariness, some people have died. But take it all in all, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-a-tat-tat. They don't think they're too tough or desperate. They know that the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Someday they'll go down together, and they'll bury them side by side. To few, it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from our listeners. <laughs>